It is such an honor to be here tonight to close out the Religion Rehab series. I can't believe that I get to do this. For those of you who know my story, you know why. It just, it, I am the least likely candidate. I was antagonistically anti-Christian most of my life. But God spoke to me in a service and it had nothing to do with the message that was being preached. But I was positioned to be able to hear from heaven. And nine years ago, he got a hold of my heart in a way that changed my life and permanently altered the course of what I was doing. And I pray that he would give you that revelation tonight. So let me pray for you. God, please enable us to set aside everything we think we know about you, about ourselves, and about what it means to be Christians in a church. That you would give us an open mind and a fresh revelation of who you are and who we are in you. God, enable us to see the truth. In your name we pray, amen. amen. You guys can take your seats. So I first want to start off by thanking John and Becky for asking me to preach tonight. It is such an honor to be able to, to preach on this stage that has been sacrificed for, that you guys have sacrificed for, that our, our senior pastors, Jurgen and Leanne, sacrificed for, that they changed their lives to bring a church to San Diego that was fresh, real, and powerful, and to... Uh, to the Pringles who gave their lives to build the C3 movement. I don't know how many of you guys know here, uh, but there are hundreds of C3 churches around the world. And we get to come together in C3 Americas because there's C3 churches all over the United States, Canada, and the Americas, and they're all coming to San Diego to the Presence Conference in just a few weeks. It's so, so exciting. And I'm excited for this message tonight because when I was first asked to give this message, I had an idea about where I thought I should go. And God had a completely different idea about where I should go. And so I just want to ask your permission. I am a, I'm a deep thinker. So I, I want you to stay with me. I promise I'll bring it together in the end. But God's blessed me with the ability to think deeply. He made me that way. And I'm so grateful to be in a church that's actually celebrated that gift. But God's also blessed me with the ability to communicate. So I promise I won't leave you hanging. But just stay, stay with me. I promise in the end, it'll make sense. So the title of my message tonight is Cops and Fathers. And this title will mean something to you as we get further along, but I'm gonna start off tonight in Genesis. And I, I, was, I was asked by, by Pastor Leanne to preach at the Cherish Conference this year. And I can't tell you what an incredible honor it is to be asked to, to be on that stage with people that are like legends in the faith, personal heroes of mine, and knowing how much it means to be given that honor. Like, I don't take that lightly. Like, I don't take this lightly. I don't just show up like thinking, God, you're gonna move. You know, like I'll actually, I'll prepare because I, I care about that. And there's a, there's a sewing into the preparation. But while I was preparing for that message in October, 
God brought me back all the way to the beginning of Genesis. And what I was looking for was just a little bit of an idea about what the world looked like outside the Garden of Eden. And when I'm looking for something in the Bible, I'll look in the Greek if it's the New Testament, or I'll look in the Hebrew in the Old Testament because I know how much those words have meaning. And sometimes in our English translations of the Bible, the word will be like a word-for-word translation, but it'll lack the richness and depth that exists in the original language. So I'll line up like Bible next to Bible to kind of really see what the text is, is saying. And I was looking for one thing, but then God led me somewhere else completely. And so in the beginning, in Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But when you get into Genesis 2, in Genesis 2, 4 through 7, it says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth uh, when the heavens and the earth were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was on the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. So in, in a lot of translations, they'll stop talking about God in Genesis 1 when he starts to create man in Genesis 2. His name changes. So in Genesis 1, the name of God is Elohim, and Elohim is about God's power, about God's majesty. It's a positional name. It's a powerful name, but in Elohim is the power to create the heavens and the earth. But when God created man, his name changes to Yahweh Elohim or Jehovah Elohim, depending on how you pronounce it. And in Yahweh, in Jehovah, is the relational nature of God. It's where God's mercy is. It's where God's heart is. And that the mercy of God precedes his power when he creates man. Because when he created man, he created us for relationship with him. But then you skip forward a little bit into Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, 1 through 8, you know the story. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the ser serpent, well, we may eat the, true of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and she ate, and she also gave it to her husband and he ate, and the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So there's a change. The Lord God created the serpent, but when the serpent talked about God, he was only talking about Elohim. He wasn't talking about the Lord God. He wasn't talking about this relational, loving father that created us for relationship. All he was concerned about was power. So what he was saying to the woman, if you eat this, you will be powerful. 
because he didn't care about relationship. He just cared about power. And if you look at the history of the world, every tyrant in the history of the world has used power without mercy, power outside of relationship. When it's just power without relationship, it's evil when it comes to humans. So the creation of evil is the obsession with power outside of a relationship with God that calms it down and gives it a context. So there's a, uh, a great, so it gets, it gets better. And this, 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 this morning, so I, I'm, I'm looking at like, so what happened? What was the result of that? So in, in Genesis 3.21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So I want to tell you that originally when I was preparing this message, I stopped there. And, it, and I, when I stopped there, it was because what came after that sounded like punishment. And today, after the 10 o'clock service, I was walking to my car, and I just felt this unsettled feeling about stopping in the middle of a verse. And I'm like, God, why would you sew tunics for them out of skin and call that out? That they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, which would wither and die. It wasn't an effective covering. But God sacrificed an animal to cover them with skin before he sent them out of the garden. But when he sent them out of the garden, he goes through this whole thing of like what he does. And he says to the woman that you will have labor pains, that it's going to hurt really bad to bear a child. And he says to the guy, hey, it's going to be hard for you to work. I'm going to give you this earth, but I'm going to curse the earth so it's going to be hard for you to work it. And I'm like, God, you're supposed to be loving. Why would you make it hard for the man and the woman? And then why would you kick them out of the garden? And he said, you got it all wrong. So let me continue on. I'll, I'll bring it together. So then the Lord God said, behold, the man and the woman have become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden until the ground, to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed the cherubim at the east of the garden in Eden with a flaming sword, which turned every which way to guard the tree of life. And it sounds like punishment, and I didn't want to preach that because I thought it would be distracting from the message. But what God showed me is if they ate from the tree of life, they would have exited time and entered into eternity. But they would have entered into eternity, an eternity separated from God. And that's not what he intended for them. He said, I'm going to send them out of the garden, and I'm going to make things hard for them, not to punish them, but so that they know that life wasn't meant to be lived without me. I'm going to give them things to turn them back to me so I can restore them so when they enter into eternity, they can enter into an eternity with me, not separated from me. That it was never meant to be about punishment. It was meant to be about reconciliation. That God doesn't hate the man and the woman because they failed. He created a plan. And even with that tunic of skin, he said there's got to be a sacrifice so you can be covered. And I'm going to tell you this before I send you out on your way. That there's one that's coming 
that he'll bruise your heel, but you'll crush his head. And that happens just a couple of lines before. So he had a plan. And the story that illustrates the father's heart most beautifully in all of the scripture to me is the parable of the lost sons. It's in Luke, and I'm not going to read the two parables that go before it, but I am going to read the beginning of Luke 15. So now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the young son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed to his fields to feed pigs. The son longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and asked them what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your order. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So there's two brothers and in act one of this story, there's the younger brother who is lost to sin. He's lost to his badness. He's lost to the world. And if you put it in context, the story is outrageous. But Christ wasn't preaching this story to the prodigals that were gathered to listen to him. He was preaching it to the Pharisees who were judging the people that were sitting in Christ's company. And a lot of times when this story is preached, it's preached to the prodigals, to the lost sons that have gone out into the world with prostitutes and wild living and are broken and in their brokenness want to come home. 
But at the end of the story, the broken son has entered into his father's joy, and the religious son is still waiting outside with his arms crossed, thinking that his father's not willing to give him a goat, but has sacrificed this calf for the other son. And it's such a crazy thing to think about these two Middle Eastern sons 2,000 years ago that that if, if the father was to divide what he had amongst them, he would literally have to sell his land and divide his livelihood among them. It would be massively inconvenient. It would be the most disrespectful thing in the world to say to a father, I mean, it would be disrespectful now, but it would be really disrespectful then to say, dad, I wanna live as if you're dead. I think I know better than you, so give me your power and I'm gonna go out into the world and do it my way. And the younger son does that. But in the pigsty, he has a revelation around power. He's like, oh my gosh, I've squandered all the power that I was given. I don't want more power, I just want my dad. It would be better for me to be a servant in his house than it would be to be where I'm at. He just wants to go home, but he develops this plan, and this plan's really about restitution. Because he doesn't say he wants to be a slave, he says he wants to be a hired servant. And he rehearses this plan when he's in the pigsty, and when he goes back, he almost says it word for word to his dad, and he says, basically, I've got a plan to repay you. You don't have to accept me as your son, I just wanna be around you, but I wanna make things right on my own power. And the father's like, just be quiet. I'm gonna cover you with my best robe. The fathers always cover their kids, they don't expose their kids. There's no father on earth that has a good heart towards his kids that longs to expose and punish his kids. That's not the way dads operate not good dads. And there's so many things that are outrageous about this father. Like a Middle Eastern man 2,000 years ago wouldn't be the one that ran to his child, lifted up his robe and like ran off to him and then threw kisses on him, takes off his robe to cover him. I mean, that just wouldn't happen. But Christ is saying, all of you that are religious, you've been wrong about God. And all of you that are lost, you've also been wrong about God. The ones that are lost to their badness, it's not about them trying to make things right with God in order to be accepted back into a lower position. It's not about saying, oh, I'm, I know, oh, gosh, you know, I, I know I've sunk too low. I know I've done all these things. I'm no longer qualified. I've disqualified myself in all of these areas, but I just want to be back in your house, so I'm going to live under, but it'll just be good to be home. And I I know there's probably some of you here, like I was, that I felt disqualified from the life that I'm living now. I felt really disqualified because I'd done a lot of things that I felt disqualified me. I had gone deep into prodigal living, trying to make a life that I wouldn't ever find the joy in, but I thought I would find the joy, and I had a list of things that I hoped in to find joy, and I got to the end of that, and in the middle of my mess was like, God, I just, I, I want a relationship with you, and like, I, I got that, but I, I was so, like, I lost my faith in, in, in the God of uh, heaven when I lost my faith in the God of Christmas when I was uh, six years old. 
and I thought that Christians believed in fairy tales. They were dumb bigots that believed in fairy tales. And I was so anti-Christian that people that were my friends that were Christian, I wasn't willing to let them have their faith and I was always trying to talk them out of it. I'm like, this is so stupid. Until I got to the end of myself and realized that I couldn't produce happiness on my own, on my own power. But there's the other son, the, the lost son who's really lost who's still lost at the end of the story. And I, I don't know how many of you are super familiar with the Bible, but there's two stories in the whole Bible that end this way. There's this parable, and then there's also in the book of Jonah. Jonah, by the way, is the most effective evangelist in all of the Bible. He saved a city of 150,000 people by telling them to repent, but at the end of the story, he's standing under a tree that is withered, pissed off because God didn't destroy a city. And God's like, dude, dude, come on. But he's like the older son. He's like, I did everything that you told me to do, but you didn't punish these people. You know, it's funny with the older son, like he's, he's upset about this calf, this fatted calf, and like a fatted calf was a big deal. Here we have lots of beef. Israel, not the same way. Israel, they have lots of goats and lots of sheep, but not a lot of cows because cows require a lot of water and a lot of food, and they don't have the water to, uh, to water the vegetation that cows required. So to fatten a cow would be a big deal, and it would be a big celebration. But the son's like, you've never even offered me a goat. And the father's like, dude, everything I have is yours. You could have asked me for a goat. But that older son saw the father wrong. But he also didn't want a relationship with the father. He didn't care enough to know what the father wanted for him or what the father wanted for others. He just made up his own way of doing things. So at the end of the life, he could, at the end of the father's life, he could get what was coming to him. But both sons didn't have a relationship with the father. And Christ does something radical when he teaches this. And in all of Christ's speaking, he always refers to God as the father. There's one instance where he doesn't refer to God as the father, but every time he speaks about God, he speaks about father. Even when he says, I'm gonna teach you how to pray, the first line is, our Father. Anybody can call God, God. That's positional. All of the other faiths in the world call God, God, but Christ is the only person. Christians are the only people that are invited to call God, Dad. And he doesn't just say, my dad. He doesn't say, my king or my God, he says, our father. Because he's the greater, greater older brother. In this story, when the younger brother says, I'm not gonna be your son anymore, I'm gonna go off and do my own thing with your money, the older brother says, fine, fine. But you know, like God said to Cain, Where's your brother? And Cain said back, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes, you are your brother's keeper. 
At the end of Luke, there's this genealogy, and the, the end of the genealogy is Christ's genealogy through Mary. The end of Luke 3, it says that it's one of those, like, son of the, son of the, son of the, son of the, and it's like son of Enosh, who was son of Seth, who was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. We weren't just adopted in from the outside. We were created to be sons. That was God's plan for the, from the beginning. And in the beginning, he gave man and woman when he protected them by telling them they needed to leave Eden to get away from that tree so he'd have a chance to restore the relationship. I'm going to cover you with something that needs a sacrifice. What he didn't tell them is that he himself was going to clothe himself in skin and come to earth and be the sacrifice that the man and the woman needed. So there was a, um, a time in, in my life that, uh, that I was really lost. And, you know, I, I really struggled with addiction early in life. Like, I started using drugs when I was 12, and by the time I was 16, I was sleeping on the beach because I didn't feel like I had anywhere to go. My parents never officially kicked me out of the house, but nevertheless, I hated fighting with them all the time, so I just stopped coming home. And I'd find myself sleeping outside and having the water come up on me. I think the water came up on me because when I woke up in the morning, I was wet. There's a number of reasons that could have happened, but I'm just going to believe it was the ocean. And there were days where people's parents that I knew were walking by on the beach, and I would cover myself in shame or try to pretend like I was just hanging out on the beach having a morning walk. You know, at 6 o'clock, there's seaweed in my hair, but that's okay. And, and I got sober, but sobriety to me at that point felt like punishment. It didn't feel like freedom. And I wasn't trying to establish a relationship with God because I didn't at that time believe that God wanted a relationship with me and certainly not the God that I'd learned about when I was a kid. So I tried to do things on my own power, and it was just a constant struggle. I distracted myself with things that I had hope in, but it was a constant struggle, and eventually I relapsed. And when I relapsed, this, my whole life fell apart. And I found myself, after this period of everything falling apart, just absolutely stuck in addiction, addic addicted to weed, addicted to cocaine, addicted to alcohol. And I had this moment where I saw myself in a mirror, and I saw the reality of my life, that I was powerless over what I'd become, that I couldn't change my ways on my own. And I got down to my, on my knees and prayed to a God that I didn't understand that I didn't completely believe in and I refused to call by name, but I just called him God and I said, God help me. And he came into my life and took away the thing that was killing me, but it would take me another nine years to actually get to know who he was. And during that nine years, I still had hope in things that I could do on my own. I thought when I got the relationship, when I got the car, when I got the house, when I got the title, when I got in shape, when I got all these things, then my shoulders would drop, then my skin would feel like it fit right, then I would be free. But in trying to do those things on my own power, I got really screwed up. 
with food and exercise, I mean, I could have been considered an exercise bulimic. I was certainly an orthorexic, which is an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. I'm 6'3", I was a raw food vegan, and I was 145 pounds. It wasn't healthy. My skin was gray, and my friends were like, what the heck? My hair's falling out, you know? I'm like, I can't remember things because I'm so B12 deficient that I'm like having trouble just like keeping stuff together. And I'm like, no, 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 I've got the healthiest diet on the planet. You know, I was, I, I was, I was a sex addict, and I, I had a relationship with a, with a sociopath that I got so screwed up mentally in that I actually thought it might be easier to be gay than it would be to continue to be in this relationship. And I don't do anything, like, half-heartedly, and I was, like, in it, trying to work it out, but not finding happiness, not finding joy. And this is between, like, 20 and 23 years old that I was going through all of this stuff and in the darkest part of my life, there was this song. And it, there's a, this band, Pedro the Lion, and I didn't know anything about the band, but there was just this one song they have called Of Minor Prophets and Their Prostitute Wives. And it was on every single playlist that I had in my iPod. It was on every mixed CD that I made for people and made for myself. It was like a part of the soundtrack of my life during the hardest parts of my life. And a couple of years ago, I was driving after seeing a client, literally like two years ago, I'm driving after seeing a client in Miramar, and I'm on Camino Ruiz turning left onto Miramar Road, and there, there's like a double turn lane, and I was in the outside lane, and about three cars ahead of me on the inside lane, there was a car with this faded bumper sticker that three or four cars back, I could barely make out, but it looked like it said Pedro the Lion. And I'm like, man, I haven't thought of that band in forever. And so I said, hey, Siri, <laughs> can you play Pedro the Lion of Minor Prophets and Their Prostitute Wives? And as soon as the title left my mouth, I was like, oh my gosh, Minor Prophets. And you know, at that point, I'm a Christian. I'm like, of Minor Prophets, that's, that's like the story of Hosea and Gomer. And so Hosea was a prophet that married a prostitute. And Hosea is like, um, is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. And his wife, Gomer, is a prostitute and she's like Israel, but in a bigger way is like all of us. And she continued to prostitute herself and he continued to be a faithful, loving husband to her. And as the song came on, memories started to flood back into my mind of where I was when I, when I was listening to this song every day. And I thought the song was about a relationship between a man and a woman. I didn't realize it was a love song that God was actually singing to me. At the time that I needed him most, he knew exactly what I needed. And so while I was preparing this message, I was thinking about that song, and I thought, you know, I could just read you the lyrics. But instead, I just asked the band to join me, and I'm just gonna sing it to you like he was singing it to me. So, um, whenever you're ready, Mark.
time you were burning my letters You were only acting the part You think without me you'll get on much better But you don't even know your own heart Come home, darling, come home quickly Come home, darling, all is forgiven So come home quickly I treated you as if you were a princess You treated me like a cop I gave you boundaries to save you from certain death Dangling from the end of your rope Come home, darling, come home quickly So I'm having this moment in the car. <laughs> and it was a long light. I got through almost the whole song in the car and I'm just bawling. Because at the time that I needed him most, he's like, hey, hey, you think I'm a cop? I'm not a cop, I'm a good dad. I've been treating you like a prince. I've been sending all of these people, creating these situations, giving you, a, just trying to get you to see that you need to come home. Because there's a love that you're looking for that you'll never out find outside of my arms. I didn't create you to do this alone. I didn't create you to do this on your own power. I'm not that kind of dad. I love you. And there's so much that you've been trying to do and doing it on your own that you've created this incredible mess. And you've got all these people that are against you. 
and you think that you need to try to correct things on your own power, you don't. That's not the way I set it up. That's not the way I set up this relationship. It's not about repenting, about you doing things to try to regain my love. I just made a place for you at the foot of the cross that there is more room at for you to lay things down than there is potential for you to sin. You just need to turn your heart back home. And I'm having this revelation in the car, bawling whilst I'm driving, and my lane starts to turn, and it's turning quicker than the inside lane, and I look at the, the bumper sticker on that car, and it didn't say Pedro the Lion at all. It actually said, praise the Lord. <laughs> and I'm like, all this time, right in front of me, Pedro the Lion, PTL, praise the Lord. And they were like, they were a famous Christian indie crossover band, actually the first band that ever did that, and I had no idea. I'm just singing this song, and meanwhile, bashing Christians in every way that I possibly can. It's so crazy, but God's so funny that he had a plan for all of this, just like he has a plan for all of us. And I just have four very quick points that I'll get through very quickly. And the first one is that, you know, God hates sin, not because he hates us, but God hates sin because he loves us. I'm a dad now. I'm married, I've got a beautiful wife, I've got two beautiful, kids that I adore. In the time that my kids have been alive, since my daughter was first born, I've taken 50,000 photos on my phone. If you look at my Instagram, it is all pictures of my kids and my family. It is out of control. I am, I, I am like that dad. And I never thought I would be that dad. But before I had kids, I didn't understand how much God loved me. And I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm human, I fail all the time, but I love my kids, and I hate anything that is, gets in their way of them living their best life. And God's the same way, he hates sin because he hates us. I don't want my kids to ever be sick. I hate sickness. I also don't have a heart for punishment. I don't want to punish my kids. But I also don't want them to live growing up broken. So I'll correct them even though it's so painful for me to do that. And how much more is our God in heaven, our loving Father, wanting to correct us, not to keep us in bondage, but to actually set us free? You know, there's, this, uh, there's a verse that says God is jealous for us, but God isn't jealous out of insecurity. God is jealous out of a deep security that we'll never find lasting satisfaction outside of a relationship with him. And it just, it blew my mind thinking about that, that he'll give us free will. You can do what you want, but you'll never find joy outside of a relationship with him. And also, you know, if, if, we, if we see God wrong, we'll see ourselves wrong. Because it's in him that we actually find our identity. It's in the security of who we are in him that we actually get freed to start to live out 
to actually let that seed that he planted in us, that unique expression of who he is, that incredible facet of his personality that he wanted in this world at this time, we get to start to live out what he created us to be. But it's only when I have the security of knowing who I am in my father, that I'm a son, that there is nothing that I could do to lose his love and there's nothing I have to do to gain his love. But man, is he happy when he starts to see me live in my purpose. If I don't see him right, I'll never see myself right. And if I see God wrong, if we see God wrong, we imitate him wrong. You know, Christ said, I can only do what I see my father doing. And as Christians, we're imitators of Christ. But if I think he's a controlling legalist that's trying to set up boundaries to confine me, I'm never going to imitate him correctly. If I think he's trying to correct all the sin in the world, by causing sinners to change their behavior, I'm never going to imitate him right. My behavior only changes when my identity changes. My identity only changes when I have a relationship with him. So in finding my, rela my relationship, I find my identity. In finding my identity, I find myself. And when I find myself, I know what I've been forgiven from. I can't help but being forgiving to others to say, God, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's not, it's not a big deal, but I know that you're faithful to complete the good work that you started, and they'll mature in their time. I don't have to try to control this. I can just love them through it and continue to speak the identity that I know is true about them over them. And the fourth thing is, is, is if I see God wrong, I'll see the church wrong that the church is God's body, and God gave his physical body for our healing, but God gives us the body of the church for our relational healing. That it's in relationships that we experience brokenness, but it's also in relationships that we experience that resurrection power, we experience that restoration, we experience that healing, and God gave us to each other to experience healing. But if I don't see him right, I'll never be able to step into that place where I can get healed. Church isn't a place where I need to follow a bunch of rules. Church is a place that is a launch pad to set me free. But I'll start to long for in my heart a change in behavior. And it'll change me naturally in God's time. But it's the heart that he's after. It's the heart that he's always been after. The two commandments that he said that were important is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, body, mind, and spirit, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our pastors, team, and what we do at C3 San Diego, go to C3SanDiego.com. 